the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Delicious Legacy, the most fun and scrumptious archaeogastronomical podcast out there. Welcome to our Christmas special. And of course, um, we're going to see some uh, Christmas traditions and some pre-Christmas traditions all over um, Europe, uh, Greece, and uh, obviously um, things that happened before uh, before Christianity arrived, and um, what kind of traditional midwinter celebrations were out there. Of course, um, we're going to just touch uh, the food element of uh, Christmas and Christmas um, and pre-Christmas uh, festivals, since uh, there are plenty of other podcasts and historians and experts out there that they um, that they've been um, talking about the history of Christmas and um, all the traditions uh, behind them. So we're just going to see some um, tasty morsels of Christmas past and obviously pre-Christmas. So welcome, sit back, relax and enjoy our adventure in food and time. Before Christmas uh, existed and was celebrated, there was another midwinter festival called Saturnalia. And that was obviously in ancient Rome, an extravaganza of food and drink, an inversion of social roles, an expression of oneself through singing and gambling and reverie. Gaius Valerius Catulus described it as the best of times. Initially started as one day celebration, usually around December the 17th in our calendar, but involved over the years and uh, was uh, really a huge um, celebration over um, over the whole month of uh, December, really. And the Roman dramatist uh, Seneca complained that uh, December used to be a month. Now it's a whole year. There were only some uh, uh, spoiled sports out, out there when they 
The ancient Greek equivalent of uh, Saturnalia was Cronia, and um, it was happening more or less uh, a similar time uh, of uh, winter. Food and drink was followed with uh, all sorts of uh, revelries. The revelries of Saturnalia were supposed to reflect the condition of a lost mythical age. Not all of them desirable, of course, but nevertheless there and remembered. Saturnalia. So let's explain a little bit. Um, uh, some, let's touch briefly what happened in Saturnalia, really, because it's um, it was really the big festival of uh, of the midwinter uh, in the past. So Saturnalia saw the inversion of social roles. The wealthy were expected to pay the month's rent for those who couldn't afford it. Do you hear this, rich people? Uh, masters and slaves were to swap clothes. People could go around the streets and there was a merry-making and singing songs which uh, some people associate with modern carols. Although this, as much uh, else from antiquity, is open obviously to debate. You were also not allowed to give lectures at the time, at this time of um, um, festivals, unless they were witty or funny, which uh, could be seen as the origin of uh, our cracker jokes. The Sigillaria on the 19th of December was a day of gift giving. Because gifts of value would mark social status contrary to the spirit of the season, these were often the pottery or wax figurines called Sigillaria made specially for the day, or candles or gag gifts, of which Augustus was particularly fond. Children received toys as gifts. The Saturnalia reflects the contradictory nature of the deity Saturn himself. There are joyful and utopian aspects of careless well-being, side by side with disquieting elements of threat and danger. And, as a deity of agricultural bounty, Saturn embodied prosperity and wealth in general. In the communal table, they had um, a bunch of dishes from the lengths and the depths of the Roman Empire. And, of course, all this changed and were more elaborate uh, over the centuries. So there will be obviously plenty of wine and copious amount, copious amount of wine consumed. Uh, there will be uh, figs and dried, um, and dried uh, nuts. There will be uh, smoked cheese. There will be panis quadratus, which is uh, <laughs> the very famous uh, bread from Pompeii. There will be olives and relishes and uh, wild boar and uh, wild boar heads and uh, uh, Roman, um, let's call them deviled eggs. There was such uh, was some kind of thing like that. Uh, pork and pork belly, um, sweetened with uh, inogarum. Um, there was a uh, uh, face like a red mullet in uh, dill sauce, uh, deep uh, fried honey fritters, and there was peaches, uh, cooked peaches in cumin sauce, and all sorts of uh, stuff, part of a Roman feast. It was a widely celebrated public festival, all in all. Of course, being winter, um, Romans and ancient Greeks as much as any other agricultural society. Winter was a period of um, not uh, much to do, really, so there had to be festivals and ce celebrations and um, eating and drinking and uh, being merry. Otherwise, how would you spend um, the long, uh, dark winter time in Europe, at least? 
Um, so yeah, um, obviously we have similar stuff um, throughout um, the ages. Um, um, the the winter the winter time um, you eat the pork that has been growing um, all um, all last year, all the previous year. So it's time to it's time to make um, the sausages and the blood puddings and uh, the pickled pork and the preserved and salted and salted hams and obviously cook the fresh uh, parts of the meat and, yeah, eat it and consume it um, and um, chill until uh, better times come. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Christmas uh, in Greece and traditions uh, um, during um, the Christmas period in Greece. Obviously, we when we talk about Christmas and Christmas celebrations, we need to have in mind that this is not uh, just for a day. They don't, they don't last just um, the day of Christmas, 25th of December, but we're talking about a whole period of festivities. Just like as the ancients uh, had um, the Saturnalia and the Cronia, and they celebrated for a whole month, more or less um, similar situation um, occurs uh, throughout Europe, um, during the winter time, you have um, lots of different saints to celebrate. You have uh, Christmas, you have obviously the 12 days of Christmas, and you have uh, New Year's and the Epiphany. Um, sometimes these celebrations go on until um, early February, really. Um, whereupon, obviously, at least in Greece, we have the Carnival, uh, which is a period um, that everybody dresses up, and um, then um, you have the Lent for Easter. So, yeah, I mean... It, it lasts really, really long. And um, throughout this um, long-lasting, um, I mean, before this long-lasting um, celebration time, there's always a Lent in Greek, at least in Greek Orthodox calendar, anyway. Um, so like we did um, talk about the Easter Lent, that um, it's the most important one. But even before Christmas, uh, um, which is a big happy celebration for Christianity, there is a Lent too, there is fasting too. And traditionally, this one lasts for 40 days. My grandmother, uh, which uh, she was the daughter of a priest as well, she used to fast uh, this whole period for 40 days. Uh, I, on the other hand, um, never lasted that long. And, um, okay, for, for those of you who don't know, who are new listeners to the podcast or they haven't listened to the one about Easter, uh, the Lenten period is generally a period of abstinence uh, from meat, fish, dairy, which includes milk, butter, cheese, and eggs. So whenever I've tried to fast, usually I, I only managed um, a week or two. I mean, uh, who can live without cheese for that long? And uh, insert here, cue here. Uh, oh, we're so spoiled nowadays. Uh, back in my youth, we never ate this and that, and uh, we lived in uh, stale bread and water blah 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 okay yeah sorry we we are spoiled nowadays and i like cheese what can i do i'm not going to apologize for that um yeah anyway i digress <laughs> mm, yeah anyway i always try and do something like lent anyway even for that little while a week mm. not because i'm pious or religious or for diet or health reasons to be honest but uh, because I'm just really, really greedy when Christmas comes. I need to be eating non-stop from 24th of December until the 6th of January at least. And for that reason, I need to keep my appetite. Um, 
So yeah, <laughs> that's why I might do some Lent before Christmas, guys. Um, again, I apologize profusely, but that's that. Um, the Greek festive table uh, is a cornucopia of tantalizing dishes. It's a feast. But as I said, it's not merely like this on the 25th of January. This is the norm for the 12 days over the Christmas period. The sight of a porker carcass hung upside down, head and all, never filled me with any dread or disgust. It always meant delicious charcoal roast was on its way the next day. A Christmas feast, an amazing meal for all. Our mothers and sisters would be a bit upset with the face of the animal. It was the main point of content. It felt yucky and gross. It looked too real, too gruesome. But we would never have the animal without its head. The elders used to say, a decapitated animal is very bad luck. Off it went, the whole animal, to the spit, through nose to tail eating. Before all this was a concept, of course. Before all this was a concept of fine dining in London restaurants, of course. We all have uh, certain persistent memories uh, from our festive uh, family gatherings. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. As we get older, perhaps, we tend to over-romanticize this and the years of our childhood, and we get uh, the warm and fuzzy feeling when we recall them, don't we? Well, even if it was filled with screams and shouts and big family rows, we can't help it. We can't help but feel nostalgic this time uh, of the year round. After all, it's been uh, very hard um, two years now. It's been different with the COVID restrictions in place and uh, the fear for our elders, uh, the fact that we might not be able to visit home again, just like last Christmas. Uh, we have that, and um, yeah, basically, we even miss that um, uh, awkward conversation that we're going to have with a conspiracy theory-loving uncle, which basically normally we would dread, but yeah, I think I would look forward <laughs> to it if I had the, the chance to go to see uh, the extended family, of course, back in Greece. Mm, instead, instead, I guess uh, some of us will be isolating, self-isolating. Some of us will be um, on our own and some of us uh, will just hope that uh, things will be better next year around and we'll spend it with our families. So yeah, uh, what can we do? What can I do? I have these uh, memories of my Christmas and <laughs> I have them. <laughs> I remember them through rose-tinted glasses, unfortunately, or fortunately. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'm going to bore you with uh, my childhood Christmas on this episode, people. In my mind, the most indelible picture of Christmas holidays from childhood was the day before 25th, Christmas Eve, during the daytime, of course, in my hometown of Veria, in northern Greece. We were outside in my grandmother's yard with my dad, my uncles, and the army of... Uh, male cousins preparing the slaughtered animals for the following day's feast. Now, the words uh, Greece and outdoors might uh, mislead you, dear uh, listener, thinking that this was a pleasant activity and fun pastime 
in the Greek sunshine. I can assure you, at the end of December, in mainland Greece, in the north, the winters are bitter, cold, and sometimes miserable. Uh, well, at least this was the case before the runaway catastrophic climate change we all facing, and which uh, seems to make each winter more unpredictable than the previous. This was men's time, primal and important. It felt like the time we were bonding as a family. My granddad giving instructions. My dad and his brothers, my uncles, and me and all the male cousins listening to him, all doing the important work, and us, the younger generation, the next masters, learning the secrets of barbecue and the techniques for the juiciest, most succulent hog in town, while having fun, of course, over the preparation of the animals. Most importantly, this gave us the place to bond. Cousins, friends of a similar age, those days would shape our mindset, our lust for conviviality, our desire to spend all of our free hours cooking and sharing the bounty of the fire pit with those who we love the most. We also connected with our roots, with our ancestors, with our grandfathers in the mountains and the rebels who lived wide, who lived wide lives in these unconquered mountaintops of Greece the previous centuries. Well, it's what we thought and pretended it was true at that time anyway. <laughs> Now, on the preparation pit, we would have uh, one or two hogs, depending uh, how many family members were planning to be around, um, hung uh, by their back feet from the roof of a shed on makeshift hooks. Perhaps, in addition, we would have a goat kid or a lamb too, for the sake of keeping everyone's tastes satisfied and for a bit of a variety on the menu. First step uh, would be to remove the precious innards, carefully keeping them for the infamous awful kebabs cocorecci. Then we would proceed by singeing the skin with a very DIY contraption made with cotton wrapped around a handheld mini skewer, uh, not so mini, a long metal skewer basically, doused in alcohol and then set alight to remove any hairs. And lastly, on this first part, was the washing of the carcass with a, with a hose. These were carefully choreographed rituals with specific steps uh, taken the same way year after every year. The spits, or souvlas, were then prepared, soaked, scrubbed, cleaned with vinegar and hot water. The animal was then put on the spit. From the back, through the, through the inside of the belly, and out through the neck, and carefully again through the head, one could hear the gentle crack of the skull, the minimal hole on the forehead. Gruesome, I agree. Shocking, perhaps. But nevertheless, another skill we had to acquire. Precision and specific amount of power were needed. Too much and the whole head would break in two. Too little and obviously you wouldn't be able to get uh, the pointy end of the skewer uh, through. Then, carefully tied on the spit with wire and prongs, protruding the meat and keeping it and keeping the back legs together. Next was the seasoning. On our um, porky friend, we did a generous mixture of salt, pepper, oregano, garlic and lemon slices. And then we shoe the belly with a massive needle and thick butcher string. We would let the spit roast in this uh, dry inside-out marinade for about 12 hours to really soak up the flavors. They were kept in a secure place, 
like in a ladder, in a room ambient temperature, horizontally, as when they would have been when on a barbecue. It was winter, after all, and outside, and especially in the night, the temperature could uh, drop really low. It was like a nature's fridge. Uh, I don't recall ever having to... I don't recall ever anything happening wrong, going wrong, basically, or questioning whether we needed to buy a walk-in fridge to store (laughs) the meat to keep it safe. One could easily imagine that we were feeling damaged and exhausted after a whole day out in the cold weather, carrying heavy barbecues from the basement, buried treasures from last year, unearthing them and revealing the stories of past revelry, washing with cold water the animals and freeze our asses off. But, for the most part, it was pleasure, joy and ecstasy. The feeling of belonging, I guess. Part game, part serious. And the transformation of the raw materials and the space itself to something worth celebrating about. All were playing important role here. Here we were, in a small corner of the old town of Area, and we defeated the elements and adverse conditions and had fun. Those festive days, including the Christmas Day fun we had, now I feel that are all stored in one place in time, separate from the rest of the chaotic memories. Recollections from our childhood that seem to surround us and to surround our hazy heads. These are kept safe, secure, always there to comfort me, no matter how bad things can be. When I close my eyes and I'm there, in Yaya's house, no one can reach us. These elemental memories are protected from any harm. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malby and Creek, UK's leading Creek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Creek produce be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil from all over the wild corners of Greece and working directly with small artisan producers. If you want to try some um, amazing traditional meats from Greece, preserved meats, why don't you get some Bavourakis organic smoked ciglino from Malbin Greek? So this is preserved um, and smoked um, pork in olive oil and they follow a traditional Cretan recipe for it, which is really old. And... Uh, the meat is smoked using olive wood and it's flavored with pepper and cumin. So this is kind of, this is a kind of meat uh, and the kind of preservation techniques that go a long, long way to the past. Or you can try the organic uh, Cretan sausages with cumin and vinegar. Again, another old Cretan recipe with uh, roots to the Byzantine um, Empire. Whatever you need, Malbin Creek has you covered. You can shop online and have the exquisite goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SE16 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. And, of course, for all you dear listeners, Malby and Greek has an amazing discount of 15% of your next purchase. So go online, go to the website and type malbyandgreek.com forward slash delicious and you get 15% discount at the checkout so that was um, the day before 24th the preparation during the day uh, the shenanigans of Christmas day barbecue I suppose they're going to be a bit familiar to most of you I think uh, the drunken uh, dancing and non-stop eating is similar I guess to all cultures um, Uh, Just the season really varies. Of course, the barbecue ritual here 
um, it's a bit more important. It's not like just some quick steaks and sausages that you put on the barbecue and then you eat and you go. Although we had um, both of these as well uh, included in our um, barbecue feast. But um, yeah, um, yeah, this was um, a different affair. You, know, you understand it was, that was a slow affair. We started early in the morning and requiring patience and grit and deep knowledge of the charcoal, the fire and its capricious character, which needs to be controlled and adjusted even after a couple of glasses of uh, uh, raki or grappa, which of course were consumed um, from early in the morning as uh, we need to warm up, warm up our cockles. So yeah, you understand that we were out there uh, on average uh, in the cold, crisp winter morning um, and of course on the contrasting heat of the pit for about seven hours. So yeah, uh, I won't bore you. <laughs> I won't bore you too much with the, with the details here. A party is a party. You know what's happening in a party. And after all, um, uh, there are plenty of uh, barbecue pit master style uh, food programs for you to watch, uh, you know, if you want to know how to cook a, a whole pig on a spit. Um, let's just say that most of us, most of the time, we would fight over the tastier, first, uh, firstly cooked uh, parts of the, of the spit roast. And generally that was uh, the testicles or the bit of the meat at the back of the legs where the bone started to split and the skin was very, very crunchy. So yeah, that's uh, Christmas Day for you. But of course, uh, Greek Christmas doesn't end uh, here. One wouldn't persevere with the Lent for 40 days. Well, okay, none of us did actually, to get uh, just one day of feasting. It hardly seemed a, a fair exchange, don't you think? No, there is more, a lot more. A lot more to come. So back to my um, father's and mother's house, back to my immediate family's homes. So yeah, me, my dad, my mum, brother, and our other yaya. There's a lot. There is a lot more wholesome cooked food waiting. Both mum and grandma can't help themselves, but cook a mountain of food, as if we haven't eaten for months, and as if we were waiting the whole long lost family to appear, uh, all fifty of them for our Christmas dinner table. And these uh, celebratory dishes are many. Pork, it's obviously the main meat, and there are countless dishes with it. And uh, the reason for this is called um, something called Uhuru no Hara, we kind of touched earlier on. Um, it's the most popular tradition in most regions of Greece, uh, which means pig joy, and takes place around Christmas. This is the slaughter of uh, the pig, which has been fattening uh, for over a year. Traditionally, it was always, it was always uh, been the time of uh, happiness and uh, revelry. Not that the pig was joyous with the prospect of its sacrifice, this is certain, but uh, joy for the village folk. The felled animal will be savoured all winter long, as we've touched earlier, usually as the only source of meat. Hence, the tradition calls for pork for Christmas Day, either whole on the spit, as my family did, or cooked in various different ways. There's also something called Christopsomo, which is a festive spiced bread, made at Christmas time and traditionally eaten on Christmas Eve. It was always made with the most expensive ingredients, highly sifted white flour, sesame seeds and spice mixtures such as aniseed, orange, bay, cinnamon and cloves. On top, other dishes that are a must and adorn every festive dinner table were there. Stuffed cabbage leaves with veals, mints and spices, in a thick avgol lemon sauce, pork tenderloin cooked with chestnuts and apricots, a capon or a cockerel 
stuffed with Swiss chard, rice and wild fennel, mountains of nut and honey, syrup-soaked cookies called melomacarona, and curabiedas, which is uh, another uh, dessert, or almond shortbread biscuits, uh, which uh, are related to numerous Middle Eastern biscuits, uh, which are found um, uh, further back in the past in the Ottoman and the Persian cuisine. And of course, countless pies, savory meaty ones for New Year's Eve, which uh, they're eaten late, around midnight, just before we go out for an all-nighter, and sweet cake, pie-like cake, for New Year's Day's lunch. Vasilopita, which is prepared for Saint Vasilios, Ayus Vasilis, our version of Santa Claus, with a coin signed for a good luck. There is um, the shepherd's meat pie, which is made uh, uh, up in the mountains of all over Epirus, which is in northwest Greece. And uh, this is um, made with lamb and phyllo, phyllo pastry um, in uh, places like Thessalia, which is uh, central Greece. This is made with pork or rabbit. Uh, up in uh, where I'm from, uh, we use beef and leek. And uh, yeah, and yeah, on all of this, you can insert a coin for good luck, actually, just like Vasilopita. In the island of Lesbos, there's a very skilled, highly complicated phyllo making pie, a traditional sweet and savory pie, which is, has consecutive layers of phyllo, uh, which give this unique pie um, the festive character. And this is for New Year's, uh, cheese and spice New Year's pie from Lesbos. And uh, for this, obviously, you make the phyllo with uh, fennel seeds and flour and baking powder and salt and sugar and olive oil and butter. And the filling is kefalotiri uh, cheese, uh, mizithra cheese. You have uh, fresh ginger, you have ground cloves, you have ground cinnamon, freshly grated nutmeg, ground allspice, and, and you garnish it. Obviously, you have um, sesame seeds to garnish it and you... Yeah, you bake it like this. Um, another incredible recipe here. So, um, Agios Vasilis, um, the Greek um, Santa Claus, which is not Santa Claus, but Agios Vasilis, which brings you presents, brings presents to the kids on uh, New Year's Eve. It's, um, you know, originated um, on a different level from the Saint Nicholas that we have uh, from uh, the rest of Europe and the Germanic Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas and so on. I guess you all are more familiar with this story. Um, the Greek one, so the Greeks generally, they never associated St. Nicholas with Christmas to such an extent uh, as the Europeans did. Uh, for, uh, for, uh, for us, basically, St. Nicholas' main characteristic, uh, at least in Greek folk tradition and religion, is that he serves as the protector of the seas and the patron. It is the, it, he's the patron saint of sailors. Uh, he was serving as a bishop of Myra, um, a city in um, Turkey, nowadays Turkey, and he was known as a participant in the Seminal Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD, which uh, saw the adoption of the Nicene Creed uh, in our religion. It's the basis of the belief system of Christians. So basically, he's, he's known for a much more generous act. Uh, a poor family in Myra, with many daughters, was known to have fallen on hard times. And... Uh, yeah, the situation which uh, was so dire, in fact, that the father was considering selling one of his daughters into slavery and prostitution so the family could survive. So to save her from this horrendous fate, St. Nicholas threw gold coins down the chimney of the man's house, thereby saving her and rescuing the family 
from uh, their predicament. So if that happened or not, or things happened exactly this way, we don't know. But it was St. Nicholas who said to have committed this act of kindness. And this was the reason uh, why he is associated with chimneys and presents and so on. So one version of the story even says that uh, the gold coins landed in the girl's stocking, <laughs> which is <laughs> which she hung up uh, on the mantle to dry. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's uh, that story. But... Um, with the Greeks, the Christian, the Christian Greeks, and um, you know Saint Vasilius, the story is a little bit different. Anyway, Saint Nicholas, his remains were in the in the basilica of the in the church of the town and was in a sarcophagus in the church. But in 1087, uh, when the Christian Greeks of the region were subjugated by the newly arrived Muslim Turks, Muslim Seljuk Turks, then a group of uh, merchants from the Italian city of Bari removed the major bones of. St. Nicholas' skeleton from the sarcophagus and uh, without authorization, of course, as uh, we've seen the Italians and other plunderers do, and brought them to their hometown. So now they're enshrined in the Basilica di San Nicola in Bari. And, and of course, uh, this is the story of St. Nicholas, but not the story of our uh, Greek St. Vasilius. St. Basil, or Vasilius in Greek, whose feast day is on the January the 1st, is always remembered by the Greek people as the figure who bore gifts and helped children, the poor and the underprivileged around Christmas time. Saint Basil of Caesarea lived from 329 AD, or C, as it's better to say, to January the 1st, 379 CE, and was a near contemporary of the Saint Nicholas, who died around the year 343. Basil served the church as the bishop of Caesarea, in Cappadocia, uh, in Asia Minor. He was an influential theologian who supported the Nicene Creed, as we just seen earlier. But yeah, he focused mostly, you know, in uh, community life, liturgical prayer, and manual labor, and in the monastic, in building the monastic life in Eastern Christianity. So the great saint was not just an intellectual, but lived in, the, in this world as well. And he became uh, known early on for his care for the poor and underprivileged and for his extremely generous nature. And the legend has it that uh, tax collectors once overtaxed the people to the extent that they were forced to hand over all the jewelry to the authorities. And Basil declared that this was unjust and forced the tax collectors to give him the jewelry so that he could return it to the people. Of course, at that point, it was impossible to determine which jewellery belonged to whom, so he came up with a novel idea to bake cakes with the jewellery placed inside them and to distribute the cake slices amongst the populace. Each person received a piece of the cake with jewellery baked inside, and the riches were thereby distributed back to the people and on equal fashion. So this incident has never been forgotten in the Greek uh, among the Greek uh, people's psyche, uh, who forever associate Basil with the tradition of gift-giving. So yeah, the, the modern tradition in Greece is not to give gifts on Christmas Day, but on New Year's Day. And of course, yeah, with the feast on January the 1st, there's another perfect time to um, feast and eat and um, be merry and jolly. And on Epiphany, uh, which is on the 6th of January, if I'm not mistaken, uh, now, um, on Epiphany, which is another big celebration in Europe in general, and um, in Greece too. Again, there is, there is um, there's again a very um, celebratory festive uh, table. 
And usually, again, the food on the table is uh, pork. And the last day of uh, of of the of the three day celebration of Epiphany, which is the which is the day of Saint John the Baptist, plenty of festive foods are eaten again too, with um, many pork dishes and many desserts uh, served on the family table. A lot of people also eat fish um, on the day of Saint John the Baptist. Talking about um, Christmas and New Year's pies and cakes, indeed, there are traditional cakes made and eaten almost everywhere in uh, Western Europe between Christmas and early January. They include the Twelfth Night Cake, which is a direct line of descent from the Roman cakes of Janus, after whom January is named. Janus, the god of the double gate, the gate that opens and the gate that such, has had two faces and a double mission, to look back at the past, the old year, and forward to the future, the new year. In uh, southern France, in Aix and Provence, they make calissons, which they must be made with almonds. They consist of marzipan and crystallized fruits mixed with orange flower water, all the ingredients being very Provencal and worthy of a sweet meat, which is the pride of Aix. At Christmas festivities in Aix and Provence, Rich families and confectioners had them distributed by priests at mass instead of the consecrated bread. In fact, calisons do contain wafer substance like, like the wafers of the host in the Catholic Church. And uh, peasants going to work in the fields of the 15th century, like the great lords and ladies of Paris, uh, whose, uh, whose palates were tempted uh, by the highly sophisticated uh, foods of the royal court, the peasants knew all of the figs of Provence, dried by the sun and the mistral wind. Uh, yeah, both of them were eating figs at this time of the year. Dried figs were also a feature of the traditional 13 desserts of Christmas. With walnuts or hazelnuts, raisins and almonds, they were one of uh, what were called um, the four orders of baking friars, so-called because the different colors of the nuts and the dried fruit suggested the colors of their habits. A treat for children was the cappuccino nougat, uh, a dried fig split open and stuffed with a green walnut. Um, William Peter's Ingleston household, uh, Sir William Peter uh, was a secretary of state to three successive Tudor monarchs, namely King Henry VIII, Edward VI and Queen Mary I. Anyway, in his um, household in the 1550s, um, the culinary traditions um, which we have them written down so the, the culinary traditions of Christmas had not altered substantially from uh, those of the previous centuries. For most, it still meant uh, brawn, along with fresh beef, mutton, pork, goose, turkey, apples and cheese, and enormously hard work in the kitchen. Uh, the witty Renaissance English poet Nicholas Breton wrote that for the 12 days festival, capons and hens, beside turkeys, geese and ducks, besides beef and mutton, must all die for the great feast, for in twelve days a multitude of people will not be fed with a little. Now plums and spice, sugar and honey, square it among pies and broth. Youth must dance and sing, and the aged sit. And if the cook do not lack wit, he will sweetly lick his fingers. 
Shred pies filled with meat, dried fruits, sugar and spices were piled up beside good drink and a blazing fire. The Tudors welcomed the Lord of Misrule with open arms, reveling in magicians, fools and music, and in a special new Twelfth Night cake, one of the earliest of the English spicy fruit cakes, into which a pea or a bean was baked. Whoever found it was crowned the king or queen of the bean for the evening, presiding over the fun and games. Of course, during the Commonwealth uh, that followed, uh, there were unhappy times. <laughs> the color was lit out of life in Christmas. Puritans wore stark black uh, with square white collars and linen caps or tall hats, and Christmas celebrations were banned. Pleasure was repressed, and fishy days and fasting were prescribed as popish. But uh, I think people uh, ignored them and they celebrated nevertheless. I hope so anyway. Fast forwarding in Victorian times, Fortnum Mason provided the finest pre-packed hampers available, and they were so successful that they began to displace the great Christmas pies of old as gifts for the family and friends. And um, yeah, the the ideal Christmas family, which was projected from Victoria, from Queen Victoria to her subjects, broadly solemn and religious, but um, concentrated and crystallized not on the Twelfth Night, as we have in most of Europe, really, uh, but on Christmas Day itself. And of course, uh, the food, it was starting to change a little bit, but still resembled bits of the past. So we still have plum puddings and mince pies, which were the leftover of a forgotten age, as I said. And um, there was still, um, these mince pies had uh, beef and minced beef, and they had uh, the best kidney puddings. Uh, and of course, slowly that beef was replaced by goose uh, as the choice of meat for the festive table and um, yeah obviously the, the, the plump breasts of the goose were uh, carved for the family and the legs the legs were sent down to the kitchen for the staff yeah most people from uh, the childhood um, time remember pork pork cooked um, either in the oven or on the spit and um, yeah for some for some people uh, who were more um, inclined to follow the Lent 24th uh, was uh, still a day of Lent and uh, there was just a, a bean soup uh, without olive oil with uh, lots of um, olives, of course, which are allowed in, uh, in the Greek Orthodox Lent and um, lots of um, onion with salt. Um, then uh, there was a fashion of um, turkey, of course, uh, even on the Greek table, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, um, a lot of people start to have, started having turkeys and then until the point that everybody in the family agreed that this is really boring and tasteless. So let's go back to pork. I think for the most, uh, for most of uh, uh, you British uh, listeners, I guess your typical family uh, Christmas was roast turkey with all the usual accompaniments. And I guess, uh, yeah, people would have um, desserts as well as Christmas cake and trifle with uh, with meringue, cheeses, uh, assortment of cheeses. And, uh, yeah, I guess some people will, will have um, some duck as well, if they, fa- if they were fancy. And, yeah, again, um, um, speaking with lots of um, friends uh, here in UK, um, of all the ages and uh, from all over the... <laughs> the country, uh, Scotland and so on. Yeah, um, again, a lot of people find Turkey uh, quite boring. 
Um, important it is. So, yeah, everybody seems to start diversifying a little bit on their Christmas table. And, yeah, salmon is a good idea. Goose is another good idea that people cook um, stuffed chicken or a cockerel or something like that. And, yeah, pork as well. And, yeah, um, this is it, more or less. Um, a short description of uh, Christmas. My Christmas, ancient Christmas, Saturnalia, traditional stuff, and um, an overview of um, different dishes uh, of the festive period. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, bonus episode, our little Christmas festive um, episode, uh, full with memories of um, childhood Christmases, even if the food is boring, and even if you have uh, shouty uncles and aunties, um, yeah, I think we only keep um, the best of the times in our, in our heads. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's time for families. Love them or love them. Well, I think um, that's all for me. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely Merry Christmas. Enjoy your food and drink with your loved ones. And um, I'll see you next year, in the new year, with uh, lots more archaeogastronomical adventures. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Have a lovely, lovely Christmas. Bye.